I want to thank the society for again hosting this event and inviting me. Uh, we tried this actually last year. I wasn't able to go to Seattle, but I'm very happy to be here this year uh, in New York. Um, um, it's kind of, I don't know, coincidental or, 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 or not, uh, but the fact that we're having this event in New York, which is one of the busiest cities in the world, and we'll be talking about time and eternal time and non-time. It's kind of an interesting coincidence, I guess. Uh, very timely. Uh, uh, um, my paper is divided into um, three parts. In the first part, I'll be speaking about the concept of time and our experience of it uh, and uh, make some comparisons and contrasts between the traditional and modern uh, notions of time and then I'll be speaking about Ibn al-Arabi uh, and his uh, uh, understanding of time as a subjective entity uh, and his rejection of time as an, as an independent reality. And then I'll move on to Mullah Sadra and uh, try to explain how he takes this idea, the subjective understanding of time from Ibn Arabi and views it into his cosmology. Uh, and then I'll end with a couple of kind of philosophical questions of reflection for all of us. And, and I'm happy actually to be uh, the next speaker after my dear friend and colleague, uh, Janer, uh, because part of what I'm going to say actually uh, resonates very well with uh, his exposition. So in a sense, he prepared the ground for me. So I don't have to uh, repeat uh, uh, some of the things that he uh, uh, explained so well uh, before. Now, I begin with a question. Is time the master of everything? In a world in which we measure everything by its speed, there is only one answer to this question. The modern preoccupation with fast time and doing things as fast as we can hardly gives us any breather to think about the meaning of time. We feel that it is time that pulls us where it wants. We cannot resist it. We often believe that we follow time even though this is an absurd idea from a philosophical point of view. We do countless things to keep up with it. Keeping up with the times is the motto of the modern world. All this creates a sense of dislocation and homelessness in terms of both time and space. We hardly give any thought on the meaning of time because such a pause puts us even further behind time. We must do first and then think. In fact, we often do and not think. The deep sense of spatial and temporal dislocation forces us to accept change as the only permanent reality. We are forced into believing that the fast speed of events around us is a reflection of the natural order of things. Change or permanence, change not, not permanence is the call of the day. We are human as much as we change. Therefore, it is concluded we shall change, that is, follow the times. But Plato says that all change is a dying. Change by itself is not a value. The philosopher's quest before the modern period was a quest for what is permanent and eternal. The Aristotelian science, for example, was a, was a quest for essences, that is, for the essential nature and changeless qualities of things, whereas modern science thinks in terms of sequences rather than essences and investigates the development of systems in time from given initial conditions. Time which signified change and impermanence uh, in classical philosophy was never seen as something worth considering in its own right. 
it was always taken up in conjunction with the cosmological order of things. The slow pace of pre-modern societies left room for qualitative time in that the kind of change observed in nature had meaning. It did not have the kind of alineation effect that modern technology and urbanization has on us. As Marx had said more than a century ago, we no longer have control over what our hands have produced. We make things that are so complex that we cannot make them stop anymore. It is this sense of helplessness vis-à-vis -vis the pr productions of our hands that create a sense of alienation and uneasiness in us. We feel out of place. We feel out of time. All this calls for a moment of reflection on the meaning of time. The concept of time developed by such mystic philosophers as, as Ibn Arabi and Mullah Sadra presents a different understanding of what significance time has for us humans. Their perennial concern to live in temporal time to reach the eternal now is grounded in an ontology and cosmology that sees everything through concentric circles and ascending hierarchies. As I shall discuss below, our concept of time is closely linked with our concept of being because what we call time is ultimately a subjective measure, measuring of an aspect of being. Without a proper ontology, all we can do is to absolutize time and commit philosophical polytheism or philosophical shirk. If time is an effect of being, as Mullah Sadra will insist, then there cannot be one kind of time. Different orders of being entail different temporal orders. To give one example from the Islamic tradition, Fahreddin Araki, the famous mystic poet, speaks of different times in accordance with different degrees of existence. His language is indicative of the hierarchic view of the multiple states of being. And I quote from him, The time of gross bodies which arise from the revolution of the heavens is divisible into past, present, and future. And its nature is such that as long as one day does not pass away, the succeeding day does not come. The time of immaterial beings is also serial in character, but its passage is such that a whole year in the time of gross bodies is not more than a day in the time of an immaterial being. Rising higher and higher in the scale of immaterial beings, we reach the divine time, time which is absolutely free from the quality of passage and consequently does not admit of divisibility, sequence, and change. It is above eternity. It has neither beginning or end, end of quote. For Iraqi, therefore, the divine time is beyond any temporal contingencies which apply to things that change. For the divine, the whole of time and history is summed up in a single eternal now. This is where the traditional concept of time is markedly different from the modern one. It is often asserted that the modern concept of time is linear and thus differs from the traditional one. While there is some truth to this, the linear concept of time was not totally absent from traditional societies. Cycles, in fact, contain some idea of the linear march of time, especially when we consider them in shorter spans. What is more important, however, is the homogeneous nature of the modern concept of time. Time as an even continuum of serial moments leads to a position that levels off all types of time and leaves no space for different degrees and orders of temporality. While believing that time is something of this world of becoming and thus cannot extend to the whole of reality, the classical tradition also believed in a concept of uneven time. This is not to be understood, of course, in terms of speed, 
acceleration or slowness, all of which have an impact on our perception of time, but rather in terms of a qualitative unevenness. This unevenness results from a position of being rather than some historical considerations. To use Mullah Sadra's language, the more beingful a thing is, that is, the more being a thing has, the less temporal it is. There is an asymmetrical relationship between being and becoming, since being represents permanence and becoming denotes transience, or in Plato's words, a kind of dying. The unevenness of time is closely tied to the hierarchical notion of time, where the presence or absence of ontological qualities change the nature and quality of time. Lest we think this is a purely philosophical idea, we should remember that it is reflected, in fact, in how we relate to different moments of time in our daily lives. The quality of time in the morning is different from that of the evening. In the Islamic tradition, for example, Friday is a more special day than others. All rituals follow the march of time reflected in the cycle of the sun or the turn of the seasons. Certain times are preferred for certain prayers. While we may think that this is all psychological and has no bearing on reality, the right moment, as it is called, is not an accidental moment we create by will. It imposes itself on us and induces us to do what needs to be done. In a general sense, this binds all Islamic rituals to nature and time in a strong way. The night of power, Laylatul Qadr, which is probably uh, going to come up in the next 10-15 days or so since we are in the month of Ramadan, uh, is more powerful and sacred than others because, as the Quran says, the night of power is better than a thousand months in which the angels and the spirit descend from all sides with their Lord's permission. It is peace which lasts until the dawn. The psychological and the cosmological converge on such moments of significance. By contrast, the modern science made time homogeneous and even. The mathematical time of modern science recognizes only one type of time, that is absolute time, as Jenner discussed in his paper, which is valid throughout the universe. This makes time an even and homogeneous variable. Once we recognize this as the only concept of time, it makes little difference whether we subscribe to a linear or cyclical notion of time. This gives a futuristic dimension to all modern conceptions of time because an even concept of time does not admit any difference between a beginning and end except in terms of spatial and temporal succession. In this view, what comes before signifies a beforeness, taqaddum, or causal priority only in terms of a historical succession, not in terms of a principal beginning, which is in fact outside time. Now, one of the common misconceptions about the traditional concept of time is that it is concerned with things in the past. The rituals that are reenacted to invoke and re represent an event of origin, such as creation, covenant, or the building of a sacred shrine, appear to celebrate a pivotal event of the past. It is also true that the extreme concern of the moderns with the future is markedly different from the concerns of traditional religions to focus on the origin. This, however, does not suggest that traditional societies lack a concept of the future. To the contrary, all major religions of the world are deeply concerned about the future. In fact, religions see the past and the present as a passage to the future, to the final culmination of things in their origin and their return to where they come from. 
An event of origin is a guide for making sense of the past and the present, yet, is it, yet it is also linked to the future state of who we are. That is why all religions hold the concept of the hereafter, even though their emphasis is different. This explains in part why the Muslim philosophers, including Ibn Sina and Mullah Sadra, as well as Ibn al-Arabi, have placed such a heavy emphasis on the complementary nature of the beginning and the end, or to use their vocabulary, al-mabda wal-ma'ad. The fascination of modern societies with the future appears to be marred by their lack of a sense of the origin. The fast and seemingly irreversible pace of modern times forces us to always look forward so that we can redefine ourselves without any roots and without the burden of remembering the beginning of things. But how can we have a meaningful future if we have no sense of our origin? The classical thought, in fact, was so concerned with this whole idea of the origin that Aristotle, for example, among others, stated that to know something is to know its origin. This principle holds true even today in modern science where the more we know about the cause, the more accurate we are about the effect. At this point, it should be remembered that the mechanical clock changed the nature of time in the modern period. The clock made, a, made time a mathematically measurable, that is, quantifiable entity, always present at hand. When such large units as seasons and cycles were the measure of time, they represented qualitative change in that one was witness to seasonal changes, growth and death in nature, and the maturation of human beings, for example. Mathematical time changed this once and for all. What was a very special case of measuring time through specific scientific tools became the only common definition of time. The invention of the machine clock was the turning point in this history. Therefore, Lewis Mumford is right in, uh, when he says that the clock, not the steam engine, engine is the key machine of the modern industrial age. Thanks to mass production, the machine clock has become such a pervasive gadget that we now measure time by looking at our clocks. But this is absurd because it is not the clock that measures the time. And I'll come back to this whole issue of where time actually falls within uh, our different uh, tools of measurement. The quantification of time is closely linked to the modern notion of the universe as a machine. And I will not repeat a, a whole paragraph here about Newton's absolute time and how John Locke got the idea and developed it. Uh, so since then I explained that, I'll skip that part. One of the frustrations of the contemporary student of pre-modern thought results, in fact, from the little or no interest of classical thinkers in time as historicity. We can hardly find any full-fledged discussions of time as a driving force of human history. Traditional thinkers were aware of time as a condition of human existence, but their interest lied not in time per se, but in our ability to overcome it. For Plato and his followers, which means practically the whole history of thought, in fact, after him, the value of something derived from its ability to resist the eroding impact of change and becoming. In the works of Muslim philosophers and theologians, time is always discussed, discussed as a footnote to the larger question of motion, and motion stands for the realm of becoming generation and corruption, and transformation. As I shall discuss below, the world is in a constant flux and created anew at every moment. For the traditional philosophers, history was not something we left behind, but rather watched our, under our feet.
That is, the idea was not whether cyclical or linear, just to go from one place to another, but to go up. This, however, in and of itself, did not mean much for the classical philosophers unless uh, we place it within a larger context of being and permanence. Ibn al-Arabi, for example, describes this by employing the Quranic concept of continuous or renewed creation, khalq jadid which makes the world absolutely contingent, but also fresh at every moment. Mullah Sadr presents a similarly dynamic cosmology with his concept of substantial motion, al-harakat al-jawhariya. With this, existential renewal becomes an intrinsic quality of things. Locational movement, that is something moving from one point to another in space, uh, and transformation or, or alteration are all accidental movements compared to the substantial motion. They are what Sadra calls motion in motion. The real motion, that is change, takes place in the very substance of things, and this holds true for the entire cosmos. Yet again, all this makes sense only within the larger context of being and permanence, for the ultimate goal of things, that change, is to realize their telos, their gaya, and return to their point of origin. Does this suggest a static concept of culture? Are not the modernists right in claiming that this leads to the death of human society, as in fact it did lead to the stagnation and disintegration of classical Islamic civilization and other traditional societies? The matter is never as simple as the modernists would like to see it. One of the greatest achievements of classical Islamic culture has been to establish a balance between a dynamic concept of time based on continuous renewal and a sense of timelessness towards which every finite, finite soul is to strive. The remarkable dynamism of Muslim societies reflected in their scientific, artistic, and political achievements has not led to a notion of self-subsisting time, a time that is a world in itself, running the risk of becoming an idol by itself. Islamic tradition was able to establish a balance between the changing and the unchanging, what uh, is called in the traditional texts, mutaghayirat wa thababit, so central to all branches of Islamic knowledge from jurisprudence, fuqah, to tasawwuf. The accounts of the human soul in the Sufi tradition, for instance, are much more dynamic and multidimensional than the modern notion of the self. The famous saying, uh, hadith of the Prophet, is lived through the entire Muslim culture. Uh, which says, those whose two days are the same are in a loss. It will be a gross historical mistake to charge the Islamic tradition of having no sense of change. The key issue is to decide on the quality and direction of change. Now, if time is the measure of motion, as Aristotle will say in physics, then all temporal considerations imply change. While we can talk about things that are in time because they are subject to change, we cannot use the same language for non-temporal beings. We have to make some radical adjustments to employ the language of time in regards to such non-temporal beings as reason, angels, God, etc. As Aristotle says, change is impossible in, th in that which has no parts. He also says that eternal entities, by the fact of their eternity, are not in time. This suggests that time does not apply to incorporeal beings. Now, divine time, if such a thing is admitted at all, must then be subject to different criteria. Like other scriptures, sacred scriptures, the Quran presents God as living, breathing life, creating at every moment, doing something at every moment. The God of the Quran is not passive, but dynamic from that point of view. But the divine activity 
or dynamism is not to be understood in terms of a Bergsonian elam vita or process philosophy, both of which make the divine dependent upon change in the world. Divine time is not serial time as it is with temporal or worldly time. It doesn't follow but creates, creates time. Divine time is the generative act of the divine. Creation is the name of the divine time. Now, with this background in mind, we can now turn to Ibn al-Arabi's concept of time. Ibn al-Arabi defines time, zaman, and it's important to keep in mind which word he is using here, because Jannah referred to the three uh, kind of orders of temporality, sermat, dahr, and zaman, and the distinction between them is, is, is really key for understanding his discussion of zaman or time as a subjective entity. Now, he defines time, zaman, as a subjective entity and denies any objective reality to it. Time is something imaginary, mutawahim, as he puts it, and arises in the faculty of estimation, wahm. It has no reality of its own, for it cannot exist apart from the context of relations in which it is found. What we call the passage of time is only the succession of events stated in temporal terms. Things in the outside world do not possess time, as they, for example, will have or possess accidents. Time is not like the color red in relation to the rose. It is not an accidental quality we can identify through the sense or reason. Rather, it is a mental attribution, something we conceive in our minds and then relate to events that we formulate in temporal terms. In this limited sense, time is like the essence-existence distinction in Islamic philosophy, it is a distinction that enables us to understand things through categories and generalities, but eventually it's a distinction that exists only in our minds. That's the distinction between wujud and mahi in classical Islamic philosophy. To underlie this point, Ibn Arabi relates the famous qu- question asked of the Prophet of Islam. Where was our Lord before he created the creation? Commenting on this, he says that if time were to be a real being by itself, the truth will not have been above limitation, taqid, because the judgment of time limits it. We may take this to mean, end of quote, we may take this to mean that time is something we attach to things rather than something that coexists with them. This is especially true in relation to God, to whom none of our regular categories apply, but about whom we still speak in temporal terms. Ibn al-Arabi Ibn Arabi's conclusion is therefore that, I quote, time is something imagined and has no reality of its own. Now, Ibn Arabi doesn't spend too much time, zaman, on the ordinary sense uh, of the term, as the measure of motion. Like Aristotle, he follows a steady logic and allows time for things that change, while also admitting that things that do not change are not subject to time. After all, his notion of time as a subjective entity is shared by others in the Islamic intellectual tradition. What he seems to be really interested in is what lies behind time, that is, the timeless order of things. To emphasize this, he introduces several new concepts, and among them focuses on the word dahr, D-A-H-R, eternal time uh, or or perpetuity, uh, whatever you like to translate it, uh, as pertaining to the divine order. Uh, as always, Ibn Arabi's primary concern is to see the reality of things through the eyes of the divine order. His considerations on, on time are no exception. There is a both metaphysical and psychological reason for Ibn Arabi, in fact, to move beyond time as temporal duration. 
If time is a continuum made of instants, instants or nows, an or anat in Arabic, then there is only now. In fact, what we assume to be a continuum is only a perception, not reality. For eternity, the only proper way of saying it is the is, not was nor shall. The presence of the eternal now secures the essential reality of things and is thus indispensable for the metaphysician. Now, from a psychological point of view, this is of pivotal significance, for the ultimate goal is not to produce a neat philosophical theory about time or eternity, but to prepare the soul for participating in the eternal now. The goal is to train the soul so that it can be a witness to the fact that everything perishes except the face of your Lord, and that he is the exterior and the interior, the beginning and the end, as the two Quranic verses describe. The celebrated Sufi concept, Ibn al-Waqt, that is, to be the child of the moment, describes this state of consciousness and means to be free from the worries of the past and the future. It doesn't simply refer to the present moment, which can be a fleeting moment among billions of others, but to, state, to the state of being present. In the language of Islamic philosophy, presence is not standing in relation to something, but participating in the full reality of existence, wujud. Sadra, in fact, goes so far as to define existence as presence, khudur, for existence is fullness, plenitude, and absence of privations. To be present is to be in a state of participating in the eternal now. If to be present is to participate in this eternal now, here and now, and that's the whole idea, then eternity is not as far to us as we might think. In the Sufi tradition, invoking the divine name, Vikir, signifies such a moment of timelessness, since the supreme divine name contains in it everything both temporal and eternal. That's why the Sufis insist on, on its invocation, on the invocation as an act of the divine, not ours. Now, to turn to the divine order of being, Ibn Arabi turns to the famous hadith, that there was God and there was nothing with him. Then he entered into the world of creation, and it is like that now as it was before. Ibn Arabi takes this to be the stage where God is qualified by himself and nothing else. The eternal now is the divine time. This is what Ibn Arabi calls the sermat, the eternal perpetual time, or absolute eternity, where an eternal being is related to another eternal being. That is, God is now being related to himself or to one of his qualities. Here God knows things not through temporal sequence, but through ontological generation. Thus, Ibn Arabi says that when God wished the existence of the world and created it in a certain manner, he knew it through his knowledge of himself. And there was no time involved, no sequence involved in it. At this point, we need to clarify the distinction between a temporal moment and an ontological moment. The temporal moment is something that occurs in time, to use our misleading language of time. It refers to a point in the succession of events, it comes before something, thus precedes certain other things. Or it comes after something, thus follows other things. The ontological moment, however, does not imply a beginning, passage, or end in time. It refers to an origin in the first principle. The contrast between the two is a contrast between the temporal 
and the non-temporal orders of being. The question of eternal time is taken up uh, again in chapter 59 of the Futuhat, where uh, the idea of the eternal now as the divine time is further articulated. Ibn al-Arabi underlies the Quranic fact that there is nothing before and after God. Lillahi al-amru min qabli wa min ba'd. God as the rich, al-ghani, precedes everything in the ontological sense of the term, since he is not in need of the worlds in an absolute sense. He then, Ibn al-Arabi then quotes the Quranic verse that he does not stand in need of anything in the world. End of quote. The word ghani denotes a specific state of wealth, richness, fullness, self-subsistence, and self-meaning, self-sufficiency, where the English rendering not in need of does not exactly capture that meaning. This is borne out more clearly in another Quranic verse. God is rich and you are the needy. Allahu ghaniyu antumul fuqara. In fact, Ibn al-Arabi has a section on the divine name al-Ghani called on the knowledge of the station of Ghana, richness, and its secrets, where he says that al-Ghina is an attribute of negation, sifa salbiyya. Therefore, its rank is different from the other names. A closely related concept which Ibn Arabi discusses at some length is death, perpetuity, or eternal time as one of the names of God. He relates the famous hadith that was mentioned before, uh, saying that do not curse the eternal time, or dahr, because eternal time, dahr, is God. It's a famous hadith. Dahr, which encompasses time, expresses an eternal duration without beginning and without end, without ezel and without abad. As Sadra will later elaborate, Dahr denotes the relation between an eternal being such as God and a creating being such as the world. In this sense, Dahr is the aspect of God turned towards the world of creation. Therefore, you have these three orders of time. You have the Sarmat, which, is, which encompasses everything, which is the relation of God to one of his qualities. And then you have Dahr within that uh, um, the kind of the largest framework of, of temporal orders, which signifies the relation of God to something that is created. And then you have the time, the temple order in which we live, where a created being is related to another created being. Now, according to Ibn Arabi, the Meccan polytheists were aware of this meaning of the word death. The Quran describes them as saying that it is only death that kills us. Uh, in fact, on the basis of this expression, as you know, the, the, the term dehriyun developed in classical Islamic uh, vocabulary to refer to the materialists because they believe that it is only time, this time that um, is the kind of the supreme principle in existence rather than God himself. Now, Ibn Arabi thinks that the Meccan polytheists were right in saying this because Dahr is God, and he quotes the Hadith, do not curse the Dahr because Dahr is God. But they were mistaken in thinking that this Dahr is time, Zaman. That is, they were, they were confused between the two meanings of time. Uh, their confusion between the two categories of time has, lem- has led them to mistake temporal time, that is Zaman, for eternity, for Dahr, and thus attribute to it something which it does not possess. Ibn Arabi believes that, I quote, they were right in using the name, Ilaqul Ism, but wrong in understanding its meaning, end of quote. The eternal time stands above the temporal time, thus represents permanence over against transience, 
This, however, does not prevent Ibn Arabi from presenting a dynamic picture of the universe. In fact, his cosmology revolves around three interrelated concepts, which I will discuss very briefly here. And these are tajalli, uh, unveiling or manifestation or theophany of God, and nafas al-Rahmani, the divine, uh, the, the breath of the merciful, and khalq al-Jadid, the new creation or continuous creation. Tajalli is the act of divine self-disclosure and manifestation. In uh, Ibn al-Arabi's thought, Tajalli is the stage of divine unveiling so that God can see his own grandeur reflected in his own creation. It is always new, fresh, but never the same. And his Tajalli is continuous, for God cannot have the privative quality of not giving of himself. Otherwise, God will be a stingy being, which goes against his nature. In fact, this is one of the reasons why God, uh, in a sense, to create the world. You know, the famous debate about why God decided to create things in the first place. Uh, you know, it's been debated a great deal in Islamic philosophy and theology. And the answer of the Sufis, in fact, lies in the famous hadith, I was a hidden treasure, I wanted to be known, so that I created the world so that I can be known. And the idea there is that uh, there was, in a sense, uh, uh, a necessity not imposed by something outside the divine nature, but something that, that, that comes out of divine nature naturally. Because uh, as St. Augustine has once said, as you know, the rose cannot not give of itself. You know, it's in the nature of the rose to smell. Otherwise, you will, you know, you will be committing illogical mistakes. And in a similar sense, God had to create the world because this is part of his nature. Now, it's in, 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 in relation to this uh, idea that Ibn Arabi uh, discusses tajalli and this is where in fact his, his concept of tajalli is different from uh, the theologian's idea of creation ex nihilu khalq min adam as creation out of nothing uh, since the divine, divine unveiling or tajalli is continuous the universe is never the same but born anew at every moment existence as the act of divine self-disclosure contains both the principle of identity and difference Tajalli leaves no space for boredom. In a similar way, Nafas Rahmani, or the divine breath, confers new existence on things at every moment. It applies to all things, including substances, which the classical theologians took to be fixed and unchanging. But Ibn al-Arabi takes the whole universe to be nothing but a moment in the divine order of things, and hung between existence and non-existence, permanence and change, generation and corruption. This is where his concept of Khalq al-Jadid differs from that of the Asharites, who confine the principle of perpetual creation to accidents only. The celebrated dictum of the Asharites saying that no two accidents subsist for two moments, al-awrad la tabqa zamanain, applies to one aspect of reality only, that is to accidents. For Ibn Arabi, the whole universe is an accident and thus subject to renewed creation. Perpetual or continuous creation refers to the not yet finished nature of this universe. Ibn Arabi's vocabulary of creation is centered around these three concepts and radically, is therefore radically different from both emanation, which the philosophers defended, and creation ex nihilo, which was defended by the theologians. While the latter suggests a fixed model of creation through some kind of a forced necessitarianism, the tajalli refers to a never-ending and ever-fresh continuity between the divine and his creation. 
The world is by definition a contingent being, meaning that it is hung between existence and non-existence. From a temporal point of view, we can say that things have neither past nor future. Only humans can conceptualize that, but presence in that they exist anew at every moment of their existence. Now, moving on to Mullah Sadra. Like Ibn al-Arabi, Mullah Sadra rejects the concept of time as an independent and self-subsistent reality, rather than defining time as the measure of spatial motion or movement as the uh, the Aristotelians, the peripatetic philosophers before him did, Sadra takes it to be the measure of physical nature that renews by itself from the point of view of its essential uh, priority, taqaddum, and posteriority, the akhur. In Sadra's view, uh, nature has two dimensions, space and time. The two are coexistent in physical beings and form a spatio-temporal continuum. They are not some physical attributes or accidents of things. And I quote, Nature has two dimensions and two measures. The first is a temporal gradual one, which admits the imaginary division of temporal priority and posterity, or beforeness and afterness. The terms are a little bit more clumsy, but I think they capture the meaning, taqaddum and ta'akhur, better. The second is an instant special one, which admits the division of special priority and posterity. And the relation of measure, miqdar, to dimension, into that, is like the relation of something definite to something indefinite, both of which are united in existence, separate in the mind. End of quote. In tandem with Sadra's concept of substantial motion, which, as I said earlier, applies to all things, uh, and it takes place, in fact, in the very nature of things, because Sadra thinks that... Uh, 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 change in, in the accident of something, for example, is a result of, of a change, a major change in its substance, because by definition, accidents cannot exist by themselves. They are dependent on the substance. To talk about change in terms of just accidental qualities is to, is to forget this relationship of dependency between accidents and substances. Therefore, within the context of a substantial motion, time, like space, becomes an inherent dimension of things, not something attached to them from outside. Space is not something in which things are found. Rather, it is a mode of being proper to the spatial dimension of physical beings. By the same token, time is not something in which events occur. Rather, it is the mind's depiction of beforeness and afterness in the form of a temporal continuum. In short, time is dependent on physical beings and has no independent existence apart from them. To think of time in terms of passing, arising, slow or fast is nothing but a result of our mental analyses. Now, we need to understand what Sadra means by time as a purely subjective term here. Time is not a physical entity like the color black or white. It is something that arises in the mind. More precisely, it corresponds to motion as measured. Now, the measurement is something we do, not something we find in the external world. In this sense, time is subjective, mental, and imaginary, mutawahim. But this does not suggest, suggest that time is something we make up with no relation to the external world. Time is a category we place upon the physical reality. But again, this is not like me calling the blue sky red. Rather, it is something I arrive at through mental analysis. The actual reality outside my mental constructions does not contain something called time. At this point, we should perhaps try to clarify the term subjective and objective and see 
how they fit into the classical Islamic thought. And hopefully this will help, also, uh, help us understand what Ibn Arabi means by uh, the subjective uh, quality of time. In modern philosophy, epistemology is subjective since it is grounded in our mental considerations of things. No matter what particular position we take, epistemology remains within the confines of our minds or other cognitive faculties. By contrast, ontology is objective or presented as objective since it is based on a reality outside us. Again, no matter what position we take on the non-subjective reality of the external world, beings outside us remain so. In this sense, ontology is objective. But a pre-modern philosopher will reverse this picture and say that epistemology is objective in the sense that it is based on the real experience and expression of a reality beyond and independent of me. No matter what particular attributes I assign to reality or what names I use to describe it, it is eventually something more than my imagination or creation. This may sound strange or radical, but the same holds true even for the so-called facts of mind, that is, concepts such as logical and mathematical truths. I am in the presence of something bigger than me when I say that 2 plus 2 is 4 or that all is bigger than the part. From the point of view of traditional philosophy, I don't create these meanings but participate in them. This makes the basis of my cognitive encounter with the world more than a mere expression of my or, for that matter, someone else's subjectivity. In a similar way, ontology is not only objective but also subjective in that beings outside me are laden with meaning. We never encounter the world as a big emptiness. Even emptiness is something saddled with meaning. What I sense, see, touch is always given to me within a certain framework of intelligibility. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to identify anything and distinguish between various beings and essences. The world presents itself to us as filled with meaning even at the level of raw experience and sensation. My sensation of something is to get in touch with the intelligible form of that thing, not its matter as such, because I can never experience pure matter, since matter cannot be found except as coupled with form. Because as Aristotle had said, in fact, you know, what we experience all the time is, is the form, not the matter itself. Again, as Jenner explained in his paper, we still do not know what pure matter is. Uh, because it, it, it is such a thing that we can know it only when we measure it. And the measure, of course, you know, change the nature of that we are trying to measure. So there is no way of getting around it. Uh, and in, in, the, in the language of classical philosophy, uh, the form, the sura, uh, is what we experience, not, not the matter, not the matter. When I feel hotness through my hand, there is a shorter sort of intelligibility unfolding in that experience. My experience of hotness is not an experience of one that agent against another that agent. That is the whole idea of that matter or dark matter. Had it not been for my cognitive ability, I wouldn't have recognized hotness. But also, had it not been for the intelligible form of the hotness, hotness I wouldn't have identified as such. In short, ontology is subjective as much as epistemology is objective. Now, uh, when we look at the concepts of subjective and objective here in, in both Ibn al-Arabi and Mullah Sadra from this point of view, uh, what we have here, in fact, is the unfolding of, of, a, of an understanding of existence. Because ultimately, both Mullah Sadra and Ibn al-Arabi come to the conclusion that to talk about time is to talk about an aspect of being. 
Without a proper ontology, we cannot develop a proper understanding of time. Because to talk about time is to talk about things other than time. It is to talk about change, motion, alterity. It is to talk about things that change. It is bound up with instance, moments, sameness, and difference. But the sum total of these considerations, in fact, brings us to existence, because these are nothing but various aspects, states, colors, and attributes of existence, wujud. To talk about time is therefore to talk about existence. Now, at the end of the day, though, let me finish with this. What, what is more important, to have a neat philosophical debate or theory about time, or to find a way to participate in the eternal now? Thank you. Thank you.